it's an illusion of the pinky finger of his father. And, and everybody says, you know, that was, that was kind of a slam towards his dad at the same breath. But, but the people rebelled, and what did it, it cost Rehoboam the whole kingdom? Right? The nation of Israel split, the northern kingdom, the southern kingdom, all because he didn't listen to the wise advice of the elders, the old guys. Listen, when I got to this church, I've been here for a long time, when I got to this church, some of y'all were old when I got here. And, and, and when I was, I'll, I'll be honest enough to say that when I came in, I, I really, my focus was we lived and breathed student ministry. And, uh, and if you were in, in that room, then we were living and breathing, doing life together and doing all that kind of stuff. And it, it was about year three to five that I thought, I've got I've to pull my head out of this room and recognize what's surrounding me. And I had men in this church that, that spoke real truth to me. And I began to listen to that real truth. Um, I think back over my life, and there were men in influential positions in my life that, that spoke real truth to me. I met in an accountability group before Jessica and I ever got married. And I was, myself and my roommate uh, were the youngest two guys in the group. Uh, 19, 20 years old, we were meeting with guys who were in their mid-30s and then some of them who were in their early 50s. And we were just doing life together. And I learned from those men. Rehoboam didn't. <laughs> he went back to his buddies. He went back to the, to the young guys, the guys who, who weren't really looking for the best position. They were just really glad their buddy was in charge now. We had to learn to listen to both groups. Matter of fact, if you keep reading, there's other examples of crossing racial lines and not showing favoritisms in that. You go to uh, Acts chapter 8 with Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, right? Uh, An Ethiopian man who most likely was a a black man. And and Philip comes to him and he's reading scripture and he's like, how can I understand this unless somebody tells me? And Philip's like, I'm your man. And he tells him and the guy gets saved and he's like, is there any reason why I can't go ahead and get baptized? And Philip goes and baptizes him. And this is, this is taking the message of what they thought was going to be for the Jews to the entire world. We can even go back to Peter and Acts chapter 10. I think it's Acts chapter 10 with Peter going to Cornelius's house. Cornelius was a, was a Roman soldier who had invited Peter to his house and he had to make a decision in a split second. Do I go into his house? And share the good news of who Jesus is? Or do I hold the cultural Jewish rules that I'm not allowed to go into a Gentile's house? The Bible says that Peter was confronted with this reality. He walks into Cornelius' house, shares who Jesus is, and Cornelius' is an entire household gets saved. Listen, we could keep going. Jesus going to the Samaritan woman at the well, right? She was a Samaritan. They hated, the Jews hated the Samaritans. This is crossing major lines. This is all showing how we can't just hold this for our little holy huddle. If you don't know this, I hope you do. Jesus doesn't look like us. He wasn't a white guy. He wasn't a black guy. He was a Middle Eastern man. He was a Jewish man who didn't have time for racial segregation. He didn't have time for lines drawn in the sand. He said, I've got a message for the whole world to know. And he made that message known. Great commissions. Jesus tells us, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. 
baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. We are, we are called to go to all people, and we have a really incredible opportunity where we live because all people come here. And it's our job to, to make sure that they know that, listen, you are welcome, you are a part of you, we want you a part of this. And I know on some level you're probably thinking, okay, man, we would never withhold the gospel. We would never withhold the gospel based on race or ethnicity or anything. Never. And I've said it before and I'll say it again. Any kind of prejudice or discrimination has no place in the gospel. Any kind. And that's what I love so much about James is he doesn't just hit us on the superficial level where we can all back up and say, no, 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 we would never. He goes a little bit deeper and he's going to cut us where it hurts. Keep reading James chapter 2, verse 2. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Let me say it like this. Your social status means nothing to God. He's not impressed with your bank account, with your 401k, or your financial plan. The Bible literally says that God breathed the stars into existence, that he owns the cattle on a thousand hills, and for of him and through him and to him are all things. He literally owns everything. He's not impressed with what you call yours. Abraham Kuyper famously said this, There's not a square inch in all of the domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. I love that. There's not a square inch over everything that we know that God does not claim to be His. That phrase at the beginning of uh, verse 2, wearing a gold ring, this is, this is a phrase that's only used one time in Scripture, and it's here. And James kind of uh, he, he coined the phrase, if you would. It, it literally means to have golden fingers. This guy's not only got money, he's kind of flashy with it, right? He knows it. He wants everybody else to know it as well. Maybe you know folks like that. And in our world, there's this natural connection between the two where there's money, there's influence, right? When there's money, there's power and influence. I said something to somebody the other day. I said, you remember when athletes just were used to be concerned about playing the sport that they actually played? And they weren't trying to be like social activists or their political influencers or, or, or have comments on religion and all this. Other. They just worried about playing basketball or they just worried about playing football, right? I, I wonder why... We continue to give influence to people just because based off their wealth and position. We listen to them because of the position that they're in. Whether they are educated or not, we listen because they have power, because they have money. It's the craziest form of elitism I've ever seen. Just because you can throw or shoot or catch a ball doesn't mean that I need to value your opinion. Right? But we do. We keep showing favor to golden-fingered individuals all the while we're ignoring the real hurts and the real needs and the real things that they say that they're trying to stand up for but they're just we're, we're just we're for, more focused on them than we are the actual need i'm telling you when 
I don't know if you saw this or not, but when Dennis Rodman started advocating between the United States and North Korea, I thought, we're doomed. Right? There's got to be somebody that's more trained or more intelligent to handle this. But, but we, oh, yeah, well, you've got money and you've got power, so we're just going to lean into your influence. And we're all going, what is going on here? But listen, when, when we do this, we lean into people who have golden fingers, and we do this within our own walls. We've lost sight of who Jesus really was. Favoritism makes winners and losers. Favoritism draws deep lines of disconnection between the haves and the have-nots, the worthies and the unworthies, the sinners and the righteous. I, I was thinking about Jesus when he was alive and you remember one of the main complaints about Jesus is he didn't, he didn't cater to the church people. Right? He would come, Mark chapter 2, verse 15 says, while Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, this is, uh, this is Matthew, this is the tax collector, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were so many that followed him. When the teachers of the law, the church people who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but the sinners. Jesus came and hung out with the have-nots. And see, the, the issue to the Pharisees was, on one hand, why are you hanging out and eating? Because it was a big deal to share a meal. Why are you eating with sinners and tax collectors? Tax collectors work for the Roman state. The Jews, natu- if you were a Jew and you were a tax collector, you were hated by everybody else. And so there was a small issue with the Pharisees. Why are you hanging out with those people? But the bigger issue to the Pharisees is why are you not chasing after us? Why are you you more concerned about those people than you are about we good, righteous, self-righteous Pharisees? It's not the wealthy church members who think their contributions should equate their respect and recognition that Jesus ran after. It was with the sinners, the people who needed to hear his message of grace and forgiveness and love. And James says when we show this kind of favoritism, we have evil thoughts. Evil there's no one here more deserving of grace or mercy than anyone else. There's no, no one here in our community that deserves an opportunity to hear the gospel any more than anybody else. In the moment that we begin to treat people as if there are levels of worth, we have become what James says is evil. And hear me, church. I love This church, I love the people that make up this church. We have great friends here, people that we do life together with and that we spend time with. But I'm not here to cater to church people. I'm here to share the gospel with people who are far from God and who need to be saved. That's my job. And I love you, but there's no person here who is more important than anybody else here. There's no one person here whose opinion I value more outside of my wife, than anybody else in this room. Because it's not my job to cater to you. It's my job to shepherd you. It's my job to, to preach the gospel to people who need to hear it. I had a great uh, moment that was 
kind of a teachable moment, hopefully. I, I get up in the morning and I do school and I, I read and I try to write a little bit and then uh, I come to the office. And sometimes that's between 8 and 9, sometimes that's between 9 and 9.15. Uh, this particular morning it was about 9.30. <laughs> and so uh, I was uh, rushing out of the house, kind of frustrated in the moment. Um, and and I, I drove down the road and I turned, uh, heading uptown, and, and I saw this boy run across the street with a backpack on. And I thought, it is like 9.30. I just lost. He turned and saw my truck and started waving me down. <laughs> and so I stopped and rode down the window of the Jeep. And he said, Excuse me, sir, can you give me a ride to school? Because I overslept. <laughs> and I said, Number one, yes, because I'm a preacher. Number two, don't ask anybody else to do that. This is not safe. I said, Yeah, dude, come on. He said, Well, let me t- pull my grandma's trash down to the curb for her. He said, That's why I ran over here to do real fast, and then I'll jump in. I said, I've got plenty of time. And so he jumps in the truck, and, and what was a frustrating morning for me, I'll just be real honest, I was pretty frustrated. I had a lot of things that I needed to do, and none of it was easy. And in a moment, I thought, okay, this is, this is why I'm late today. And so he jumps in the truck, and I'm just talking to him, asking what grade he's in, what his name is, and all that kind of stuff. And, um, and we just talked for a little bit, and he was, yes, sir, no, sir, I'm so sorry, thank you so much. And I was like, dude, this is not a problem. And he said, this is the second time this week. <laughs> I said, you need to fix your alarm. <laughs> he said, I know. I said, well, I said, don't, don't walk. If you see me, I said, you flag me down and I'll come get you. Simple, easy, nothing, nothing no high pressure, nothing. Told him who I was. Yeah, I'm the preacher at Emmanuel. He's like, thank you so much. I said, you bet. Got out of my truck. I didn't open my Bible. I didn't slap him in the head with it. I didn't talk about sinners and righteousness. I didn't do any of that. I was just real with a kid who needed an opportunity to have some, a little bit of help. And, and what really kicked me in the gut is knowing that was probably the first interaction with non-church people that I'd had in probably two weeks. I mean, I come to work and I, you know, we got staff things and we meet and we go and we're running and doing and we have meetings and uh, and and sit down and counsel with folks and we do all this kind of stuff and and it's like when I was preparing this, it's like James just said, "Listen, man, you got you got a lot of church people, but there are a lot of people in this community that need to hear." about who Jesus is too. And so I've just kind of said, okay, God, I, I need you to open up my eyes a little bit more. I need you to make me a little bit more available to folks, not just not to exclude or to, to uh, cast you guys to the side. That's not what I'm doing, but I, I, need to, I need to get out of my own little hole sometimes, even as the pastor, and say there's a world full of people who need to hear the gospel. There's a world full of folks that need to to know who Jesus is, and I need to be available to them. When we we begin to be so inward-focused, then it looks more like a club than it does a church. When everything that Jesus did was outward-focused, everything that Jesus did was, was to pull as many people into the real understanding of who God was. 
Listen, James continues in verse 5 through 7, and he gives them some hard things. We're not going to read that. Basically says all the wealthy people that you keep honoring, they're the ones who are taking advantage of you. And I could talk for a long time about that, but I'm not going to. And then James gives us the implications. So we had the challenge, and now we've got the implications of this type of attitude. Verse 8, if you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin, and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. Obviously, you hear this royal law. That's just James being James. Remember, he's Jewish. He loves the law. He says, you hear this, you keep this law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself. That's Leviticus 19, 18. It's what Jesus says, the second most important commandment. Remember that? Love God with all your heart, mind, soul, strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. If you show favoritism, then you're not keeping the law, and you're a law breaker. Now, remember, the very beginning of James, James addresses this to the 12 tribes scattered, right? His primary audience of this letter are Jewish people. And he looks at Jews and goes, you're lawbreakers. And that's a big deal. That's a strong statement to say, number one. But it's a very big deal to a Jewish man to be considered a lawbreaker because that's the, only, the law was the only way they had to equate their faith, to, to find favor with God and to, to have right standing with him is by keeping the law. James goes on, verse 10. Whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles just at one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For who said do not commit adultery also said do not commit murder. If you do not commit adultery but you do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. And I know you're thinking that he just really equate murder with treating people unfairly. And the answer to that question is yes, he did. This is all one thought. This is all one big thing. If you're guilty of one, then you're just as guilty as somebody who did something else. Because this is the hook, and this is the major implication of this whole thing, is what we like to prioritize and rank people just like we like to prioritize and rank sin, right? This person is more important or more deserving. This person is less worth my time and effort. But this sin is a big sin, and this sin is only a little sin. I'm not hurting anybody by doing this. I'm not hurting anybody by saying this. But at least I, I may be doing this, but I'm not doing that. And James is saying, you can't do that. No sin is bigger than any other sin. Because when it boils down to it, it's sin, right? Sin is sin, and people are people. In the same way that all of you have ever done is maybe tell a little white lie, then Jesus would still have to come and die for you for that little white lie. And in his world, it would have been worth it. And if all that ever came to our church were drug addicts and alcoholics and cheaters and murderers, were people who had lied on their taxes and beat their wives, people who cheat the system and take advantage of others, people who abuse power and manipulate influence. Guess what? They are worth our effort and our sacrifice and our intentionality and our investment and our heartache and the message of Christ. He died for them just as much as he died for you. The moment that we begin to think that we are somehow more deserving of the gospel than anyone else is the moment that we've forgotten who we are without Christ. We're nothing without Him. We're the nobodies. And it's time, church, that we sacrificed our pretentiousness on the altar of mercy 
There are no haves and have-nots. There are no worthy and unworthy. There's just mercy that's poured out and given to everybody who calls upon the name of God. And so where does this leave us? As law-breaking sinners, right? That's where James is. It's individuals who are in need. Those who are in our self-righteousness would try to slough off those others and just kind of ignore them. But James isn't done yet. Look at verse 12. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Listen, live out your faith. Treat people, love and love others in a way that you're going to be judged by the law. And then he goes on and says, Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Man, it's such a great triumphs over judgment. See, we're all undeserving of salvation. We're all undeserving of mercy. We're all lawbreakers. There are no favorites in God's eyes. Romans 3.10 says there's no one righteous, not one. We all deserve judgment. We all deserve death. But mercy triumphs over judgment. That word triumphs means to glory against, to exalt over to boast oneself to the injury of another person or thing. It literally means mercy beats judgment and rubs its face in it, right? That's the way I see that. It's so wonderful. It, like it triumphs over. If it was a football player, it would have an excessive penalty uh, for excessive celebration, right? It, it, it beats it and it knows it beats it and it kind of dances on its grave, right? It's this incredible picture in Scripture. It boasts over it. Then when we come to the, to, the, to the throne of grace and we come and stand before God, we don't stand on our own righteousness. Look what I did. I was at church. I, I shared the gospel. I read my Bible. I prayed. No, you don't stand on any of that because none of that matters. We stand on mercy that Jesus gave us. That we're saved by grace and grace alone because we're not worthy of the salvation that we possess. We can stand arm in arm with other people. Go, you know what? I'm not worthy, and neither is he, and neither is she, and neither are they. Because nobody is. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Don't lose that warning. Judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. This mercy is for everybody. God in his infinite wisdom chose to reconcile creation to himself, a broken creation, a sinful people, people who in every essence don't deserve it. And he gave his one and only son that whosoever believes in him. Listen, this is a whosoever gospel. It's an everybody gospel. It's our job to take it to everybody. Maybe you struggle with feeling worthy. You are worthy. Maybe you've struggled with showing mercy. You don't deserve it any more than anybody else does. In church, I believe, as TJ comes, I believe that when we take this message of mercy to a broken world, it responds to that. It craves that. The question is, church, are you taking it? Are you just comfortable with the circles that you have and the people that you're around? I wonder, I wonder if Jesus was here, 
if he would hang out with us. We want to think that he would. But I also think that he'd be more concerned about lost people than he would be about us. He'd be more concerned about making his message of mercy known than he would be in our holy huddles. Mercy triumphs. Let's pray together. Father, we love you and we thank you for today. And God, as TJ comes and as we just have a moment of invitation and a moment to respond to your word, God, I just pray that in every area of our life we would understand where this hits. This is not a favoritism when it comes to our children. This is not a favoritism when it comes to our friends. This is a gospel-centered favoritism. God, that our churches would somehow begin to reflect our communities in all areas, not just in the way we look and live, but in the way that we we interact with people, the way that we love people, the way that we do life together, God, that we would just chase after who you are and share this mercy message with whomever we can. Sometimes, God, that means we got to break out of our circles. we got to get out of our comfort zone. God, forgive us for, for hoarding the gospel. Forgive us for not sharing the message that we have the hope that we have and the mercy that we've received. God, let us live lives that are focused not on ourselves, but with the focus of making sure that more people go to heaven and less people go to hell. God, you've given us that responsibility to go and tell. And so, Father, I pray that we as a church can be good examples of that. God, that we can set the standard of that in our community in our families, in our own life, God, that we would never lose sight of what's most important. God, we come right now in this time of invitation, God, just to say that we are not worthy of the mercy that we've received, but we're so thankful that you've given it. God, if there's somebody here this morning that doesn't understand who Jesus is, I pray they'd ask questions this morning. If there's somebody here that needs to join a church, I pray they'd join this morning. God, this is your opportunity to speak to our heart, but most of us here just need to be confronted with our own circles. And how we get out of them, God. How do we take this message and and share it? God, let that be the burden on our heart. God, let us be broken over the lost people in our community. And let let it be the message on our mouths. to Take this and share this because, God, you are so good.